Well, a few years ago, uh, God really spoke to me about how much I was complaining and about the things that I was complaining about. I was taking 25 teenagers or so to Costa Rica, and we were all trying to prepare and to put ourselves in the right mindset and stop ourselves from saying things like we saw in that video. Uh, but I found myself doing anyway. And during that time, I think God did this, but I was driving a 2004 Pontiac Grand Am and uh, just, you know, beautiful car, right? You know, just uh, antique is a classic, right? Uh, but the window broke. The automatic, the power window broke. And not only did one window broke, but both of them broke. And I was mad about it. And not only did it break, it just, not that it just didn't go down, it wouldn't stay up. So I was shoving like everything in my car into the window, trying to get this window to stand up. And uh, one night after youth group, I went to Taco Bell because I'm a health nut. And I got so mad when I realized I can't go through the drive-thru. What am I going to do? I can't go through the drive-thru. And it, not only that, it was like a torrential downpour. It was just insane. So I got out of my car, and I'm soaking wet. I get inside, and Taco Bell is just packed. It's backed up. And I text Toria, this is taking forever. I can't believe this. And I caught myself complaining about these things that were just really small. If that's the worst thing that would ever happen to me, that my car window wouldn't work so that I couldn't go through the Taco Bell drive-thru to get my quesadilla, is that the right way to pronounce it? I'm not sure. That's the worst thing that happens to me. I've I'm, I'm got an awesome and a blessed life. Not long after that time uh, at Taco Bell, the youth group and uh, I watched a movie called Living on a Dollar a Day. It's on Netflix. You should check it out. It's about these people uh, that live in Guatemala. That They literally live on $1 a day. And as they cook, the, the parents will cook the food in their uh, small houses. It actually poisons their children. But that's the only thing that they can do. They don't have ovens. But this, as they cook, it poisons their children. And I'm sitting there complaining about my 2004 Pontiac Grand Dam's broken window. But somehow we find ourselves saying these things. I'm starving. You're not starving. Look at me. I've never starved a day in my life. Or, man, I'm so thirsty that I could die. But the truth is that if we make $32,000 a year or more, we are in the top 1% in the world, the top 1% wealthiest people. So most of us in this room can say that we are wealthy and if you say, well, I'm not quite at uh, 32000 well, think about this. In India, the median income for one year is $611, the whole year. We are blessed. We are wealthy. God has been good to this country and good to us. See, during this time of preparation, I came across the chapter in Psalms, Psalm 78. And I was enamored by it, and I'm still, as I go back to it, it just blows my mind. It's sort of one of those uh, wake-up call chapters. And I'm just going to prepare you. You need to buckle up, because this is a roller coaster ride. It describes the relationship between uh, Israel and God. 
and how their relationship went. And today's going to be a little bit different than most sermons. I want to encourage you to pull your phone out if that's how you use your Bible or pull your Bible out. We're going to go verse by verse through Psalms chapter 78. And if you don't have it, you know, feel free to look in the screen. There are Bibles in your pews if you want to grab one of those. It's the black one, not the green one. You'll be real confused if you pull out the green one. That's called a hymnal. I don't know if you've ever used one of those before. But uh, the person that's speaking here and writing here is Asaph. And he is the worship leader, basically, of the temple. And we're going to look at uh, verse 1 in Psalms chapter 78. It says this. Give ear, O my people. Listen up to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He says here, listen up, listen to the law of the Lord, the law that the Father has taught us, the law that we will pass down to our children. And he says here that we're going to praise the Lord for his strengths and the mighty works that he has done. Verse 6 tells you why he's going to praise the Lord. Look at these first few words. It says that the next generation might know them. That's going to be the point of this whole entire chapter. He says, look, remember what God's done for you. Think about how blessed you are. Why? Because there's a generation that comes after you that's looking at what you're doing. It says, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments that they should be like their fathers. Uh, should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Man, that's a big few verses. He says, you need to remember what God has done for you so that the next generation won't be like the generations before you. Here's a question for you this morning. And hey, look, I want you to realize that you're here for a purpose today. And God wants to speak to you uh, for a reason, and he's got something to say to you. I want you to think about this. What if you decided to praise God in public and in private all the time so that the generation coming up behind us will put their hope in God and not forget the works of God and obey the commandments of God? See, it's our responsibility to tell the next generation. Oftentimes you hear uh, an older generation complain about the younger generation, forgetting the fact that they had a hand in raising that generation that they're complaining about, right? But we have to take responsibility and say, I'm going to praise God and I'm going to remember the mighty works so that the next generation might know him. And the truth is, is the the generation that we're living in right now is very confused about who God is. We decide to pass a lot of things on to them. We teach them how to play baseball, right? We teach them how to catch a ball and hit, hit it. We make sure that they get a real education. We make sure that we teach them how to work hard. But where are the fathers and the mothers that make sure their children know God? Who he is how he loves us, 
and what his word said. See, we can't decide that we're going to leave that up to someone else, to their kids' church leader or their youth pastor or their pastor. They will teach them about God, and I'll teach them about some other stuff. We can't outsource Christianity to someone else. Why? Because they see what we do. And they look at us as parents, and they see what we do more than they hear what we do and what we say. They see how much we emphasize uh, vacation and entertainment and hobbies. And we show them that the temporary is more important than the eternal by our deeds. The world is very confused about who God is. And we need to set the record straight that God is love and that God is holy and God is just and God is merciful and God is mighty and God is forgiving. And God is to be feared, but God is also kind and gentle. See, your dad, dad in the room, your kids need to see you worship God. Why? Because if they don't see you do it, they're going to think it's not important. Why? Because the next generation needs to know God. This passage says we must proclaim God so that the next generation won't be like their fathers that disobeyed God and rebelled against God. They turned their hearts and spirits away from God. Now look, this is going to be real obvious that they're talking to the people of Israel here. But this hits me right in the heart. Verse 10, it describes them. It says, they did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. It says here they turned their backs on God because they forgot what God had done for them, the miracles that he had done for them. And next it tells us about those miracles. It says, in the sights of their fathers, he performed, in verse 12, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt. In the fields of Zone, he, he divided the sea and let them pass through it. And he made the water stand up like a heap. Imagine that. I don't know if you watched a few years ago. I haven't seen it, but I heard it, it was pretty good. It was a, a movie with Christian Bale in it called Exodus, which is weird, right? Batman is Moses or, uh, leading them through the, the, the water, right? I am Batman. Uh, but imagine that. It gave you great visuals of what it would be like to walk through a sea and to see the fish like swimming by you, right? They saw this. And then two months later, as he's up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, they build an uh, uh, idol of a calf and worship it. Two months after seeing that, they forgot how good God had been to them. Verse 14 says, in the daytime, he led them with the cloud, and in the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. God led these people through the wilderness with a cloud. They followed that in the day and a fire at night. Talk about a great GPS system, right? They just follow this thing. They get locked on. When they get thirsty... He has water come from a rock for them so that they can drink it. Surely they'll follow God now, right? Verse 17, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. What? How can you do that? God does these miracles for you. And many times we think that, don't we? 
God, if you would just you know, knock this tree down in front of me, I will follow you for the rest of my life. And we think these things, right? But these people saw it, and then just months later, sometimes even sooner than that, they turned their backs on God. Yet they sin still more against him. They see these supernatural things, and they begin to question God's love for them and his power. Verse 18 says, they tested God in their hearts by demanding the food that they, food that they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? Can he? Can he do it? Does he have the power to? And they taunt God and they mock God and they test God. Can God set us a table? Can God spread out a picnic blanket so that we can eat something? Why can't he give us something to eat? Verse 21, therefore, when the Lord heard it, he was full with wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel and because they did not believe in God and they did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of angels and he set them food in abundance. God had already given them drink from a rock. And next, God literally sends them food falling from the sky in the form of manna. Bread falls from the sky. Think about that. You pray to God because you're hungry, and, and, and manna falls from the sky. It's, have you ever seen that movie, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? Well, this is Cloudy with a Chance of Manna, right? The Bible says man did eat angel's food. That's angel's food cake back here in manna. But God gave them food and water in the wilderness for around 2 million people. That's not a small thing. Out of nowhere, water from a rock, bread from the sky. But they questioned God, and they mocked the miracles that God had done. They saw God answer prayer, and they said it wasn't enough. Yeah, bread's nice, but where's the main course? I want some fried chicken. Verse 27. So he rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the sea. Exodus tells us that they were quail. Verse 28 says, he let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwelling, and they ate and were filled. For he gave them what they craved. That's scary, right? See what happens next when we get what we crave. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. God gave them what they asked for, but he still judged them for their sin. God judged their complaining and their lack of gratitude and their lack of faith. Surely now they would turn to God, though, right? Okay, <laughs> they've seen all this stuff. They've seen all these miracles. God finally lays down the law, and now they're going to, okay, I understand, God. We've been treating you wrong. Verse 32. I told you this was a roller coaster. In spite of all this. They still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered God that was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. They sinned against God and they ran towards idolatry and wickedness. God judged them and then they would return and seek him. Verse 36, though, says they only flattered him with their lips, and they lied 
with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Man, I worry this is us sometimes, that we flatter God with our lips and our heart actually belongs to someone else. We sing his songs, but our heart is unfaithful. We really, what we love and what we think about and what we crave are the things of this world and selfish desires. And we test God's mercy and we test God's patience. And we sin right in front of him and convince ourselves that he doesn't see. See, you can hide things from your boss and your parents and your, your pastor and your wife, but you can't hide things from God. He gives us blessing after blessing, but we still complain. And we ask for more and more. And we're never content. But after all of this, God still responds in love. That's the God that you serve. Verse 38 says, Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and comes not again. He still responds in love after all of this. It says how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Verse 42 says they do, did not remember his power or the day he redeemed them from the foe. How quickly we forget what God has done, right? Verse 43 reminds them before they came out of Egypt, He says, when he performed his signs, those plagues in Egypt, remember all the the boils and the frogs and the lice? When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the uh, fields of zone, he turned their rivers to blood so they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them. Talking about the uh, the Egyptians. Verse 51 says, he struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led them out, his people, like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safely so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. So finally, we get to the end of it right here. We see, okay, he brought them out of Egypt. He brought them through the water. He led them with the fire and the clouds. He gave them water from a rock. He he, uh, rained down manna. And then he even rained down quails, even though they had complained. God finally gives them a country, and they settle in, and they get a land to live in. Surely now they would turn to God, and they would run to him, and they would stay there, right? They would stay focused and stay dedicated. Verse 56 says, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, and they did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and act treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. God had done so much, but they still worship temporary and empty things. Skip down to verse 68. It says, but he chose the tribe of Judah. They were his. Even though all that that they had done. Why? Because it says, which he loves. 
He chose them because he loved them. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which is founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took them from the sheepfold, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them. Another version says it this way. He says, so he fed them according to the integrity of his heart. Isn't that cool? Why is God good? Because of what you do? No, absolutely nothing to do with that. God is good because God is good. It's not in response to anything that you do. God is good despite the fact that we are not good. And it says he guided them with the skillfulness of his hand. All right, you can take a little bit of a deep breath. That was a lot of scripture we just plowed through. I told you it was going to be a roller coaster, up and down and up and down. But let's do a quick recap. These people that God had chosen, he gives them a law. They don't follow it. They forget what God's done for them. God still does amazing things for them, yet they sin even more. God did more and more for them. They complain about it and demand more. God judges them to get their attention and to draw them back to him. But then they flatter him with their lips. They said they would do things that they never did. Their heart was not true to him. But for some reason, God has compassion on them and he still forgives him. Why does this verse mean a lot to me? It's because it's my story. That's Phil Wayman right there. God does so much for me over and over again. And I turn my heart away from him. And then he lets my sins, consequences come on me. And I turn back to him. And yet my heart leaves again, over and over. And I don't know about you, if you're that person in the room today that's wondering, is God going to give up on me? I've turned my back on him so many times. This story here shows you hundreds of years of Israelite people turning their back on God, and yet he chose them and loved them. And God chose you, and he loves you this morning. There is no one that is too far away from God that he does not want you to run to him. This story is familiar because it's my story. It's our story. God blesses us and we turn our back. God lets us face our consequences. And then we flatter him with our lips and go back to the sin that we came from. It's not just our story. It's our country's story. No other country on this face of this earth, in my opinion, has been more blessed than America. But we constantly mock God and turn our backs on God, selfishly take God's word out of context to try and manipulate and control people. When tragedy comes, we flatter God with our lips, but we lie to him with our hearts. We stretch God's uh, word and, and the word Christian to represent a political party and sacrifice character as a means to get power. This is the cover of Newsweek in 2015, the first issue. It says this, the Bible, so misunderstood, it's a sin. I want to read you this quote from the author here, and it's up on the screen as well. It says, they wave their Bibles, it's talking about us, right? They wave their Bibles at passersby, screaming their condemnation of homosexuals. They fall on their knees, worshiping at the base of granite monuments to the Ten Commandments while demanding prayer in school. They appeal to God to save America from their political opponents, mostly Democrats. (laughs) That's good, right? They gather in football stadiums by the thousands to pray for the country's salvation. They are God's frauds. 
Cafeteria Christians who pick and choose which Bible verses they heed with less care than they exercise in selecting side orders for lunch. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I and neither have you. At best, we've read a bad translation. A translation of translations of hand copies, copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. This is what people think about Christianity. And some of it we've allowed them to think this because of our actions. But the author here is trying to convince his readers that the Bible is a myth. It's stitched together from people's opinions. Despite the fact that we have tens of thousands of manuscripts uh, spanning thousands of years, and, and let alone the fact that we have more Uh, proof that Jesus lived than Napoleon lived, or the fact that the Bible was written by over 40 authors over the span of thousands of years in three different continents, and there's no way that it could just be put together by a bunch of people that colluded together to say, hey, let's create a book. And the fact that it comes out without... People, Christians can't even decide on like the color of a carpet, let alone the deity of Christ and the Trinity and all that kind of stuff that they would just magically have put together, right? No, it's nothing less than a miracle that we have God's word. But the reason I showed you this is, the fact is, is his main point is kind of true. Is the Bible is so misunderstood that it's a sin. We like to emphasize parts of our Bible and skip over other parts of the Bible. We like to talk about people headed to hell in a handbasket with no tear in our eye. We talk about how we know that from the Bible that homosexuality is wrong, but you won't catch us telling one about Jesus. We condone people's sin who is uh, uh, something that's the same as ours, but we condemn people that have a different sin than we have. We jump up and uh, down about their sin, forgetting the beam that's in our own eye. We pick and choose parts of the Bible that we apply and leave others to pastors and missionaries to fulfill. This is America's story as well. See, the truth is, is our country has been blessed. And as far as I'm concerned, no person has been as blessed as I am. I fall, and he picks me up. I fail, and he forgives me. I become apathetic and he loves me and I run to him and he pursues me. I'm ungrateful and he still blesses me. So the point of this message is not to get you all depressed about who you are. But if you do not investigate the depths of your sin, you don't understand the depths of his mercy and how good that God has been to us. The point of this message is that, is that you are blessed And that God has been so good to you. So the fact that America is still on the face of this earth is an act of mercy and grace. The fact that I have breath in my lungs is forgiveness. That's what I call blessed. People talk about prosperity gospel, which is kind of funny. It's because, look, you're already prospering. Like, how could you possibly even want more? What, you want quail instead of manna is what you're saying, right? Oh, burn. You want more. No, but we don't live for this temporary world. Hey, we're living for the next life. The Bible tells us to lay up our treasures in heaven. 
But we complain and we forget about God and we become apathetic towards God. Have you ever done something for somebody where you thought they were going to say thank you, but they didn't? Right? You, you thought it was a pretty big deal what you had done for them. They didn't even mention what you had sacrificed for them. They didn't even think about it. Let's look at what God has sacrificed for us. See, the point is to not just call us all rotten sinners, although that's true. The point is, is to remind us how good God has been to us. See, church people often like to dress ourselves up real pretty and, you know, put on the three-piece suits and all that kind of stuff and make ourselves look really good. But we should be the people that know ourselves more than anybody else because we see our reflection in God's Word. And when we look at these things, we see, hey, I'm not that great of a person. <laughs> I'm not that, like, awesome. So why should I judge anybody else? Why should I look down on somebody else? No, I should have the same grace for people that God has for me. See, if God never does a single thing for us ever again, he still deserves all the honor and all the glory and all the praise and all the obedience that I could ever muster up. If he never fills my bank account, he never gives me health or wealth, he still deserves all of us, all that we have. If we don't get another breath, I've still been blessed beyond my wildest dreams. How quickly we forget the roof on our heads and the clothes on our backs and the wives and the husbands and the children that we have and the fact that we have a Bible that we can lean on, my salvation, the fact that I'm not going to hell, the fact that he's taken me back over and over and over again. He's shown me wonders and mercy. We are so blessed. Let us never forget like the Israelites did. See, we must proclaim it to the next generation. Why? So that they can know them. I'm done here. I just want to say one thing. Parents often talk about how they want to provide for their kids what they didn't have. But they don't need more stuff. They don't need more of your things. They need more of you, and they need more of Jesus. That's what we need to be concerned with passing on to the next generation. Don't pass on the American dream. It's empty. Pass on Jesus and the dream of this next life that is to come. See, if you want to change the world, I don't often quote Hitler, okay? <laughs> Typically, it's a bad decision to do that. But what he did say is he says, if you want to control a country, you control the children. And we have to fight that type of evil in this world with good. And if we want to change this world, we've got to invest in our children. There's nothing as a parent that you can do. You can give away all your money to the poor, but if you don't raise your kids for Jesus, it's empty and it's a failure. I told them that as they interviewed me to be the pastor of the church. They said, what's your number one priority to raise my kids for Christ? That is my first mission field. And if I don't do that, everything I've done is a failure. Hey, we've got to pass on the fact that we are blessed to the next generation. Our God has been so good to us. Now, last week I preached like 15 minutes. This week I preached like 45. 
So you can't be mad about it. I just took it from last week to bring it back today. But I don't want you to forget. I want you to turn your brains back on for one second to remember how good God has been to you.